Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based sciences. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. Hey. <laughs> I don't know why it's so hard to start. It's, it's hard to start, hard to end. Yeah. What is the beginning? Well, that's, isn't that what we've been talking about? New beginnings and how endings and beginnings just kind of flow into each other. They do, but I'm feeling, you know, just full disclosure today, for those out listening land, Teresa already knows, I'm feeling very crispy today, very sort of hungover after, yeah, this might be our most bantery and introduction yet, but, you know, Teresa and I were just in New York City for two days and we had an intensive live experience with our coach and we've talked about her. Stacy Brass Russell, Passionate and Prosperous. And it was just, it was an enormous amount of information and connection and energy, you know, bringing 20 women into a room like these high, high frequency women was inspiring and wonderful. And just so much went on and being in the city that just, I, for me, feels like home, it was a lot to process. And so yesterday I woke up at home in Bucks County and really just felt spent for the whole day, took nap to, you know, just really to restore from that, to absorb. It was like Shavasana all day long, you know, having experienced an intense yoga class, which really it was a master class in business strategy and yoga. I mean, the way that Stacy is able to take this, this system of transformation we call the eight limbs of yoga and, you know, just sort of implement it into a larger system. It was, it was remarkable. But so today I'm even just like still feeling a little like I'm trying to catch up on sleep. So what we're talking about, I feel aligned with, but I also feel like I'm breaching every boundary of what we're about to talk about. You know, I think that's what boundaries are for. You know, I, I've talked a lot about boundaries. I think a lot about boundaries. And it occurred to me some time ago that a boundary is also a new frontier. So like the threshold practice, yes. you know. We have boundaries of where we live. This is my house. That's yours. Boundaries of inside and outside. But as we cross from one to the other, it is a new frontier. We get to open up into new experiences. And that's what I took away from my, from my weekend and also feeling just a bit overwhelmed. Not overwhelmed, but just whew, in integration and process time, because there was just so much information that there's this whole new frontier, this next place to step into. And you talked about the energy 
in the room with all of the amazing women that were there. Stacy also brilliantly included all the women out virtually who were on a Zoom meeting. And oh my gosh, just watching that process was so amazing and also inspiring as to how inclusive she was able to be with the people who are right there in front of her in mm -hmm. two different formats, both live and live on Zoom. But the other energy that really I found to be an interesting one to look at was we began this on November 11th, so Veterans Day. So there was that bit of energy floating around. But also on November 11th in New York City, it was 70 plus degrees. You and I were walking around in shirt sleeves and, you know, dripping on the first day. And then the next day, boom, this transition to where it was 40, de 50 degrees, 50 degrees, coming back into autumn weather. So even noticing that uh, the weather and the earth itself was trying to integrate its uh, transition from one season to the next. Yes, 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 yes. So today we're going to, you know, talk about transformation, the beginning of the transformation part of this yoga system. And, you know, whether you are a practitioner of yoga formally on the mat or someone who's heard the word and is a little yoga curious, or even just if it's not in your orbit yet, um, these are universal things that we're talking about. They are not limited to one's mat or one's, the boundary of one's house or body, as we were talking about. You know, boundaries, just interesting. When I was younger, I used to think that a boundary was limiting. I used to think that it was the thing that was going to keep me from living the free-spirited life that felt natural to my, my spirit. And then one day I realized after kind of fluttering around for so long, that the boundary was really just a suggestion and that having the boundary actually meant more freedom. It was not less freedom because within that boundary, I could go anywhere within it. I could also choose to breach it and go beyond it. Now I'm talking about my boundaries. I don't want to breach other people's boundaries because that's a different definition of boundary. You know, when we have the things that we need to kind of keep ourselves and our own self-care boundaried, but this type of boundary just kind of felt like it perceptively, I was like, oh, boundaries are for suckers. You know, they're just to keep you, you know, listening to the man and whatever. But once I realized that the boundary was an invitation for more freedom, I could explore within it and make the choice. Without the boundary, there's no choice. And for me, personally, I felt untethered. You know, when I didn't have the boundary, what I thought was freedom was actually bondage because I was, I didn't have any sense of space or ground. And so I was just floating in the ethers without any purpose and had nowhere to return to. There was no sense of, of home or return, which I think is part of the cycle, part of the process. And so now I can flip the bird and say, fuck you boundary. I'll see you later, I'll, but I know you're there. And what that reminds me of is the path. You know, I used to always say, oh, you know, I fell off the path. There's the path and there I just fell right off it. The path is kind of a boundary. It gives us the things that we can work toward. It gives us definitions. It gives us form. You know, we could get into at some point a talk on emptiness. Form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And nothing really has intrinsic value of its own or a nature of its own. That's a whole other, other conversation. But this idea of walking on a path, of, of practicing things on a path, like the yogic path, 
And the times when I was like, oh man, I haven't really practiced any of these things in so long. I'm so far off the path, but I can still see it. I know it's there for me for when I'm ready to return and put my feet back on that road. And that has happened many times over my life. And at this point for the last, I want to say five to seven years, it's been a much more steady walk on the path. And the view is expansive and eternal. So wherever those boundaries are, there's also a sense of limitlessness. The path, uh, you know, when as you were talking about the path, I've thought of the same thing. This and other paths that we've walked on. I've been thinking an awful lot about that, especially in deciding how I'm moving forward in life. What, what are the gifts and talents and skills that I can bring forward? And how do I find them within myself? And there is a path of self-reflection, a path of sitting with it, a path of study and understanding. But what I really noticed when we started talking, when you started talking about paths, were how many times you said you fell off the path. And I think in terms of- Wandered off. Wandered, wandered off. off. Oh, yeah. wander and yeah. wonder. So wander, I always put together with wonder. So as you wandered off, it's a, you know, there's this openness for wondering. But that many of the paths were, have steep inclines where you're really like have been puffing and puffing and trying to like climb up this navigation of adding a height to an elevation to the path. And I always find that whenever I'm out hiking and I'm on a path that adds elevation, it's strenuous. It, I, I know it, I feel it in my breath because my breath then becomes a little bit labored and I call in that sympathetic breath because I need the energy to be able to climb, to be able to walk, to be able to get to and greet with exuberant joy the time when you get to the meadow and it flattens out and I can just saunter and catch back up and kind of feel like I really know where I'm going, even if it's just for a little bit, that pause in the switchback, the pause when you hit the meadow and stop to look around at the grasses swaying in the breeze and how easy and light it feels and noticing how my breath can then slow down and I can take that transition to out of fight or flight, out of sympathetic and into parasympathetic and say, oh, no, I have some time to just be and observe and integrate the benefits of, <laughs> of the climb, the benefits of the climb. Yeah. So what you're also implying is a certain mindset before you get onto the path. Like, you know that there's going to be peaks and valleys. You know there's going to be challenging areas where if we're talking metaphorically on the path that we're on, we're going to be going through a lot of the, the ethical codes of conduct for, for the yoga system, which are, you know, like I said, universal. But some of them may be, may be steeper for others. You know, different one of these, different, different one of these, different <laughs> uh, yamas and niyamas, these, these codes that precede asana, precede the physical posture of yoga, the seat of yoga, as we know it in this culture for a reason, because it really kind of helps us to set our mindset and if not set it, at least be aware of, you know, 
that we are consciously moving through our lives. We are consciously stepping on the path. It's a, it's a mindful experience. So we start with how we show up and then we move into, you know, the other sort of limbs, which we'll get to. And I find it really beautiful that the first yama, the first restraint, is it rest their restraints, right? The, uh, the yamas and the niyamas yes. are observances, but that it's non-harming. It's ahimsa. It's do no harm. And when I was going through this, I started laughing because I had forgotten when my kids were very little, I have three kids, we would sit at dinner and every night I would say, all right, I just want to remind everyone that we have two rules in the house. The golden rule, you treat others as you want to be treated and ahimsa, do no harm. And this was a regular event at dinner. And one day, like, I don't even know, months, years had gone by. And the little hand goes up after I said it. And I said, yes, what? What do you have a question? I forget which kid I made. What, I forget who it was. But she says to me, mommy, I know what ahimsa means. But what does harm mean? Oh, Like, I had assumed that they knew what harm meant. So I was defining ahimsa, a Sanskrit word, so that they would get it. But but what does it, what does harm mean? So we got to have a discussion about what it meant to, you know, be mean to others or to harm ourselves or to, you know, do things that were not going to serve us in the end. But I just thought, oh my gosh, the things that we, we presume, but do no harm. What a beautiful way to start a mindset. And what does that mean? How can we break down ahimsa? There's, you know, we could, we could go traditionally and we could go into the yoga sutras the second book in the Yoga Sutras, I think it's 35 through 39, that breaks down in a scholarly way. But, you know, while I have read and I've got like four or five, one, two, three, five different copies of the Yoga Sutras by me and one that I've used quite a bit, I'm still not a scholar on it. So I don't want to, you know, get up here and pretend to like, hey, we're going to talk about the yamas and yamas and ahimsa. But we are going to have a real conversation. That's what we do about how, what it means in the modern world, what it means as we interact with ahimsa, do no harm in our real everyday lives on and off the mat. I often see the yoga eight depicted as the tree of life with different parts of the path at different sections of the tree. And uh, the yamas, um, that's what we're, yes, the yamas. <laughs> we're a little crispy, remember, and we might do we that are, a lot today. We really? had a What's lot of... We have a lot of downloads of information for the past couple of days. But try the to tree, see yeah, then the tree of life and the yamas being the roots. This is our grounded presence, or I feel that it's my grounded presence. I shouldn't say ours. My grounded presence in right living. And one of the things when I was reading and going through all my past notes and, yeah, the many, many yoga books also accrued over the years was, and again, I'm not a sutra scholar, but this really, this one really kind of touched me in the research of Ahimsa. And it's Sutra 2.35, which says, in the presence of one firmly established in nonviolence, all hostilities cease. And when I read it, I didn't think of all hostilities externally. I didn't bring that out into anything beyond what is Teresa right now. And that if I can be firmly established in understanding nonviolence in, in, in its most subtle form of maybe not so kind self-talk, right? Or, you know, not getting enough sleep. Or maybe being like we are today, a little crispy and overload, 
from all the information that downloaded and really just trying to catch back up and, you know, spend the time with a focus on our own personal self-care, then I can calm any of those non-violent, those violent voices or not so kind voices in my head so that all hostilities inside cease. And I think that's a really, for me, that is so, so important for me to be able to step outside and deal with others, talk with others, be in the present of others. And I say others because I mean the human and the non-human world with harmonious vibrations that if I show up in nonviolence and peace, then that's the harmonious vibration that I choose to be in the world with. Sometimes I don't make it, but it is a choice. Yeah. I mean, I heard someone once say that the reason we can see violence outside of us because we have it inside of us, you know, that everything is a reflection. I forget who said that. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have said it in very different ways. And, you know, as I look at myself and try to, you know, we, we all see ourselves in a certain way, we kind of classify ourselves, we put ourselves in different boxes. And I've always kind of imagined myself a peaceful, loving person, you know, a very uh, an optimist. And yet we've talked about it at the wheel. I am not so kind and I am not so generous and I am not so peaceful. And so when I think about the violence that I see outside and then I wonder, where does that live in me? I know it lives in me when I'm driving often and not as much anymore. I'm, I'm sort of you're working on old patterns and telling old stories. It's still there, but it's not as frequent as it used to be. And I think I've said there were certain, you know, political signs I used to flip the bird to until I started blowing kisses too. And at first the blowing of mm. the kisses felt very contrived and out of alignment with my actual feelings about the issues, but felt completely in alignment with my desire to come into a different space where I can hold for a variety of different opinions and viewpoints. That is not to say that I have, I have some hard lines that I don't cross, you know, and I'll say it, I, I, well, I won't, I'm not going to get into that here, but because that, that perpetuates the inner violence when I start, you know, churning it and turning it around, you know, making it something that it may or may not be. But to look at those different times to, you know, maybe the practice for Ahimsa is to be aware of when we, when we, when I, when you sort of move into a space of aggression of, discursive self-talk, discursive external talk, you know, when we compare ourselves to others, you know, how are we eating? Are we eating in a way that is doing the least amount of harm? Now, I'm a vegan, but I'm not judging anyone who eats meat. I love a good cheeseburger slathered with blue cheese. I just choose not to eat that now. But if I had a health situation that required that I have some animal protein to help boost my own immunity or my own situation, I would probably choose that at this point to kind of, that's doing no harm. We, I don't know that we can not do harm across the board. I think there's always going to be a little, like the tomato thing you were talking about the other day from the good place. You know, we do our best. You know, we're going to walk outside and we're going to kill a lot of little bugs under our feet without knowing it. We're going to trample down on ecosystems that we can't see. There's certain things, but it's, I think, more about intention and we do the best that we can. And that intention for me is I always bring things into something that feels really comfortable for me. And that is, I'm, I'm much more of a grassroots kind of a person. <laughs> the roots of what happens in myself, what happens in my family, what happens in small community mm -hmm. is my first step into looking at ways of having 
some sort of an impact on all other beings. And grassroots and really getting myself in a place that I feel that I can understand these precepts, that I can understand and begin to notice when I step outside of them. And I think that's the important. You said it was intention. And I think for me, the intention is the more I read about it, the more I study, the more I understand how many different ways ahimsa, violence, can show up in my own life, in my own actions. It brings an awareness of noticing when it is so that I can take a pause and hopefully, hopefully make a different choice. Sometimes I don't notice and I don't make the different choice and I let my words be weapons. I let my emotions or anger come off of me and like gleam onto other people because I push them so quickly. So it shows up so many ways in our thoughts and in our movement, even on the mat. And, you know, I'm a body worker. Everybody kind of knows that. I've spoken about that before. But there are so many people that I know who have come to my massage table or my yoga class with the attitude of no pain is the gain. That if you don't have pain in your workout, if you are not like pushing it to the ultimate limit, that you're not deriving a benefit from the time that you spent in focus of moving and conditioning your body. I believe the uh, opposite is true, that no pain is all the gain because it, for me, it helps me to observe more clearly, to feel what I'm doing and maybe, maybe transform the way I approach my movement practice as a metaphor for how I transform showing up, that it doesn't have to be painful to find a gain. It can be calm and peaceful. And in that, there's a transformation. And, you know, if we remember that our asana practice, which is not the limb we're talking about today, but the reason we do physical postures is so that we can sit longer in seated meditation without being distracted by the afflictions of the body. So we work on the body so that we can sit longer in a more meditative state, which I think if we remembered that, or if that was part, it's not always that people's intentions, some people, and if you're younger, you know, maybe that harder workout is what feeds and nourishes and is in complete alignment. I know that for me, I used to love that. It was just something that I never thought I would want to slow down. Now I prefer the slowing down and post-menopause, I don't have the estrogen to trade. I don't have it to, to, to balance for that. I need to slow down and it's better for me now. And I guess it depends, like we're always moving through those cycles. I also, you know, when I was younger, I used to think that we were only accountable for our actions and our words, whatever came out, that if I behaved mm. like, as a shitty person, that that was clear. Other people could see it. It was witnessed. It was, and I can definitely be the asshole. There's no question about it. And part of me is okay with that. You know, just it's my humanness and it's my my flaw. You know, it's whatever. But then over, and then it was your words. How do you speak to people? But that comes out and there's a direct cause and effect. But I was always told, but you're not accountable for your thoughts because no one can see them or, or hear them or feel like maybe they can feel them because it comes out in certain ways. But it was that was the way it was framed when I was younger. So I thought, oh, I used to harbor all of these thoughts that 
I was in opposition to, I was out of integrity with my thinking and my actions because I, I thought they were different. I thought that they were, there were only certain things that were accountable, but violence also is in thoughts. And therefore in a karmic world, in a paradigm where we're looking at cause and effect, absolutely our thoughts matter and we are held accountable to that on an energetic level. And even if it stayed, those thoughts you think are contained within the boundary of our minds and our hearts, no, they slip out through our words and our actions, sometimes in ways that we won't even notice because we think we're keeping them in, but that's just not true. And once we can reconcile and come to terms, and that's why sometimes when I fold over in a forward fold, I do ah hung. I bring my hands in front of me. And what that is, it's um, om is sort of in line with body, ah is speech, and hung is body, speech, and mind. So we are getting into that physical alignment with an intention to do it energetically, spiritually, emotionally, and, and all of that. It's all connected and none of it is, is separate. You mentioned harboring thoughts inside and boy, that just opened up all kinds of places in my brain as well. When you started talking about the thoughts and being accountable, not for what I think, because even if it does, even if those thoughts that I'm harboring don't actually come out as words, they might come out as a cold shoulder or a disinterest uh, when somebody when I'm in somebody's presence and then replaying those harboring thoughts over and over and over in my brain get written into my fabric of form and they stay with me. And going back to, you know, what I said earlier in the presence of one firmly established in nonviolence, all hostilities cease when I harbor thoughts and play that, I'm going <laughs> to, I was going to say, and I am going to say, play that VCR tape. So there we go with aging again, <laughs> play that VCR tape over and over and over in my brain. And it gets written in. It's impossible for me to cease those hostilities because I hold, I'm holding on to them. I'm repeating them. I've had discussions with people or arguments or whatever it is. And then I played over and over and over and over again in my brain until I'm angry with somebody who did the slightest little thing a long time ago that I just chose not to ever let go of. So a different type of embodying violence and harm to myself. And whew, what a practice that is to recognize it and just that, you know, my sister, my, my young sister, my youngest sister once said forgiveness or we were raised Catholic or turning the other cheek is not about getting slapped again. It's about recognizing that what you're holding on to is in you and you turn so that you can release, let go and forgive so it's not stuck inside yourself. And I found that to be a really beautiful reframing of something I had heard as a youngster. That is beautiful. And it leads me right into what I wanted to say next, which <laughs> is, you know, there are many different ways people frame these yamas and non-harming non-violence is probably the most traditionally offered definition. But I found one from artofliving.org that just said kindness. It framed everything except for the non-stealing. Everything else was framed in a positive way. So kindness, and that got me thinking about, you know, what are the practices that we would do 
to balance out ahimsa, to find, to, to activate nonviolence or kindness? What, what is the antidote to the violence? You know, what can we do? Well, forgiveness, you mentioned forgiveness. That's one of the things that we can do, not for the other person, for us, to just to be able to let it go. It comes from that forgiveness place. One of the things I saw was go on a criticism fast, you know, find where you are criticizing. And I could do this. I mean, because I know that my criticisms come out in very subtle ways and more energetic than, than words. So to be very clear about when that is arising, but however, being that critic arises for yourself or others to be able to say, you know what, let me reframe non-harming as kindness. Let me reframe this. And it's not about bypassing, spiritual bypassing or toxic positivity. It's about recognizing that we can change a situation if we want to. You know, maybe the violence is serving you right now. Maybe feeling superior or, you know, whatever it is that how it arises, maybe that's working for you right now and it's not time. But when you're ready, this is a really cool practice. Now, this is something I do all the time. Genuine compliments. Give people compliments. Call it as you see it. We were in New York. I must have stopped three strangers on the street to tell them how beautiful they were. And I, there was one there. Actually, two of them were hostesses at restaurants. But I just was so struck by their smiles. Now, you're so beautiful. And then, you know, someone standing next to them. And I'm like, how can I see their beauty so I can include them into this compliment? So seeing something, saying something nice is a beautiful thing to be able to do. To uh, eat mindfully. Yeah, I have a friend, we both have a friend and he also does our hair and he's a yogi. His name is Andy Glickman and he's fucking brilliant. And we were talking once, he said he reikis his meat before he eats it so that whatever pain or from the violence of the kill is still in there, he's able to kind of help balance it and be mindful and reverent for the food that he's taking in, the nourishment. And so these are just little ways walking when we're walking outside. Teresa talked about her fox walk. She can, if she wants to talk about that more, but because it's so slow and mindful and a different trajectory for the foot, there's necessarily an added layer of mindfulness. And so maybe in doing whatever mindful walking you may do to recognize that there's possibly going to be ecosystems and you know bugs and other things that we're tramping down and we can't avoid all of that. You know, we're not going to ever be able to do absolutely zero harm, I think. But our intention, again, that feeling of moving through the world on purpose with the intention of doing as little harm as possible. Love and reverence for nature, going out and recognizing that, you know, the things we take for granted. We take for granted that the sun comes up every day, you know, even if it's raining. We take for granted that the seasons will change. You know, these are things that we can instead step outside with a certain reverence and awe, true awe mm. for the bigness. So these are just some little things. Celebrate your life. You know, celebrate by chanting, dancing, singing. When you cook in your kitchen, make that a celebration. You know, it, so there's all these little things and practices we can do every day that help to instill and cultivate a sense of kindness and nonviolence. The practice that I did earlier this year, I think we ta I talked about it in season one or season two. Boy, it's whoo, that was a long time ago, mm -hmm. was I, I did a program with Dr. David Hamilton, and it was the biology and contagiousness of kindness and being happy, how good for our health and well-being it is to practice happiness. And, you know, just the framing, practice happiness. It just sounds like uh, something that is going to be filled with joy and fun and 
all of these amazing benefits of how our body responds to happiness. Like happiness begets happiness. If I wake up and I practice my, my, the biology of being happy, I know that, hey, I can also be talking to the little cells inside my body and saying, hey, dopamine, my feel-good relaxation chemical. I'd like a little bit more of you today. And, you know, I know that sounds a little bit weird for me to say that, but when I talk and set that intention and say, dopamine, I need you to be a strong player today, it is an intention that speaks directly to the physical, biologic aspects of my body. Every little cell in my body is happy. Every little cell in my body, in my body is well. Is well. <laughs> we did that. Was that at a camp? We, I, I'm, yeah. uh, no, I know it's not the first time we've sung, we sang that song here on the podcast. Right. I think we did it live at exactly. camp too. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere around the laughter yoga. So are we good? Do you have anything else you want to say about ahimsa, doing no harm, kindness? Do you have anything that is calling to you? Only one little thing, and it'll only take a, a quick moment. You mentioned mm -hmm. the fox walk, and in the fox walk, we talked about that also on a previous episode. It's really slowing down and changing the way my foot engages with the earth. So instead of landing toe first, I land heel first, and then drop the big toe, the little toe, and really with intention, walk to be able to notice. And the power of that slowing down, that fox walk, is, for me, it's an analogy for fox thoughts. That when I'm rushing through life and moving so quickly and fall into habitual patterns of just thinking this and doing that, not really paying any attention, maybe I can slow down address my thoughts in the opposite instead of landing on my toe, land on the heel of the thought, and then allow it to gently kiss the earth or kiss my physiology and see how it feels in my body. Is this a thought that needs some transformation or is it just one more thing that is slowly passing through my consciousness? That's a beautiful way to sort of draw in a close to talking about kindness and nonviolence. So number two, satya, truthfulness. And truthfulness, each one of these has so many different inroads and we could do an episode on each and every one of them. There's just so many practices and inroads. But truthfulness it brought me right into throat energy and the throat chakra being able to speak my authentic self. And in order to do that, I need to be in touch with who the authentic Teresa is in order to be able to verbalize it and come from a place of authenticity, but also from integrity and to have a practice of growing beyond the reflection of how I've been conditioned to respond and pause and notice if this is just an old conditioning that, and a pattern that I'm not even aware, in it, aware of that no longer serves or does it. It can go either way, but I think this practice is one of slowing down for me in what I'm about to say, how I'm about to say it, 
and noticing, is this a conditioned response or have I really put some mindfulness into making some choices? You brought up the chakras and yes, Vishuddha, the throat chakra, absolutely for communication and truthfulness and listening and all of the things that we do to communicate. I would also add in Manipura, the third chakra, because mm. that is where that's right between the navel and the solar plexus, depending there are different traditions that go closer to the navel, some closer to the solar plexus. But the element is fire, which is, you know, transmuting. But it's also where we begin to peel away from our tribal thinking. It's where we begin to move from our more authentic and genuine self. So if we think about our root chakra is more tribal, it's what we're born into. It's that feeling of security, safety, and belonging to, to, the, to what we're born into. And then we move into the watery element where it gets creative and flowing and sexual and all of those beautiful things. And then we rise up to the Manipura, and that's where we begin to really shed the, those old patterns and burn away the things that are not in line with who we are when we're in balance with that chakra. And so one of the things that I came on, it was from a yoga journal article, said, be careful not to confuse your point of view with the truth. And that's why I think Manipura is, it's also as we rise up, it's, you know, then we get to the heart and then the throat. So in that logical progression, as we're rising up, you know, what comes between Manipura, the fire of, you know, of genuine self and moving from that place of power and Vishuddha, the throat chakra is the heart. So they say the heart is the ceiling to the lower chakras and the floor to the upper ones. The lower chakras are more manifestational and they're more tangible and the upper ones are a little more ethereal and esoteric, and, but we can still you know, work with them. But if both and all are informed by love and the air element that is very mobile and a bit unstable at times, then, but we have something to work with there. The air it, it fans the flames of, of the fire. It, we can't have the fire without the oxygen. We also, as we rise up, the ethers and the spaces, we need to have that air fills in the space. So there is a logic to all this whole system. There's so many things we could talk about. This idea of truthfulness and living an authentic self, being your genuine self, living in integrity. And each one of these yamas it seems to me is also fed by meditation and silence because how can we even know what our true genuine self is if we don't find some relative stillness or relative silence so that we can can listen and i know you don't love like listen to your body and i'm also not a big like listen to your body if i don't know what my body is saying and i'm still trying to interpret it but there is in order to shift from judgment to observation there is a space in which listening deeply to the body without, without agenda, without thinking what you're listening for, but just being open and present for what arises from the body is extremely informative and part of the whole transformation. I like listen to your body as a cue in a yoga class, but I like the practice of listening to our body. And being able to notice when we're moving, where we start to hurt or what makes something accelerate and something get better. But also listening to my body is a new practice that I think really helps and supports this moving beyond conditioned beliefs. I've been practicing lately when people say things to me, when I have interactions, when I feel 
a response or have to make a big choice to sit down and notice how it feels in my body. And Stacy actually did a, a very similar exercise uh, this weekend of allowing us in many different ways to feel into the experience of how things landed in the body beyond words. Uh, the practice of stepping into our future self or stepping back into our past self and just really noticing and being comfortable with what the, how those experiences feel. And it is kind of new for me to have this practice of when I need to make a big choice or a decision, when I'm struggling to know whether to do this or that, and whether it is truthful first to myself, is this something that is authentically me? Am I being truthful and honoring uh, my own needs and wishes, ahimsa, and also how that's going to be in how I show up in a relationship or whatever is going to be the, the recipient of an action is how does it feel in my body? To just pause, say the words, make the choice, and then notice, huh, wow, that feels awful. Or I feel so much at ease. I can take that next step. And that is a truthfulness practice of being truthful to myself before I show up with someone to somebody else. Brilliant. And yes, when Stacy offered that exercise this weekend, I was it felt like something I need to do on the daily because how do we know if when we're lying to ourselves? If the lie has been repeated so many times over our life that it 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 feels true. You know, that even like it could still, will it feel true in the body if we step into that? I, th these are like the things I'm excited to play with because, you know, the person who asked the question when she did that said, how do I know the difference between my human brain, the one that's rationalizing and, you know, whatever it's doing and, you know, my intuition, the thing that is the most genuine inner voice that is my guiding, my guiding light. And that's a question I didn't, I couldn't think to formulate. But when mm -hmm. she put the, the, the practice into action, I thought, wow. And she said, I wanted to try and I didn't have a question. I didn't have anything. So I, I called her later and I told her, I boxered her and I said, instead of having to force myself to think of a question, I did that practice just stepping into the room that we were all in this weekend and just noticing what that felt like just to get kind of a baseline. I don't know if you've ever used a pendulum, you know, yeah. you would ask it, what is yes? What is mm -hmm. no? and then ask it a question that you know the answer just to confirm that yes is yes and no is no, that that's kind of what this exercise feels like, the inner pendulum to under what is yes, what is no, what does that feel like in my body? And when I did it in the room, I started feeling really emotional and I was able to access the energy of the people in the room, even just for a moment. And it just made me feel like in times when I'm feeling alone or you know unbalanced, I can do that. I can call that energy in by closing my eyes and stepping into the room. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that has to do with truthful, truthfulness, except to say that the lying to oneself, like what is the truth in my body? Because our bodies won't lie to us, but our minds will absolutely rationalize the shit. Yeah. Stepping into and, and trusting in those feelings, in truthfulness, and like uh, that practice was, when can I tell what's going on in my brain? And 
I think personally, I am have not historically in the past been historically in the past. Yeah, we could say it a couple of times. Been really great at listening to my heart speak. I've processed through my brain and we've talked about coming out of the head and into the body so many times before. And, you know, sooner or later it all lands and I actually do it. <laughs> but feeling into uh, the body is amazing. And some of the things that we talked about over this weekend that I think really fit into truthfulness was looking at our fears. Am I good enough to move to the next level of whatever I'm manifesting? Am I an imposter? Do I really know enough to, do we know enough to be talking about all of the yoga eight to everybody who's listening, right? Is there an imposter fear? So there's so many fears that we can be harboring inside that until I stop and say, do I have a fear of not being good enough? Or do I have a fear that I don't show up authentically? What are those fears? Then it's hard to really be truthful to myself if I'm not going to take the time to answer those questions. And I can say when they are posed, do you have a fear of not being good enough? I usually just sit there like, I don't know, <laughs> until I have time to process and be out of the current situation where somebody's asking the question, maybe walking Siva or making breakfast. I'm like, oh, I think I might have that fear sometimes. So I'm a little slow to process most of the time. But, you know, this practice of noticing self-talk and allowing it to be truthful is has always been really powerful for me to catch myself in the, oh, Teresa, you're so stupid. Why are you doing that thing again? Sentence and recognize, yeah, we don't, that, that's not a very, I would never say that to you. You listeners or you, Sherry, everybody that I'm talking to, I wouldn't walk up to you and go, oh my God, you're so stupid. Why are you doing that? Back to Ahimsa. Back yes. to Ahimsa. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a big circle here, right? right? <laughs> because so, if your truth is you're an asshole, you know, and I say you're an asshole, it could, it may be actually practicing ahimsa. If that person needed to be stopped, if there's a bully and you look at that bully and bullies only know strength and you say, shut the fuck up, I, I do not receive your assholeness, then that's truthful. You're coming from a place of truth. You're not, you're not breaching the boundaries of, of satya. But And you may also not be breaching the boundaries of ahimsa because you're taking care of yourself. You've set that boundary and you have said no more. And maybe you can't affect that person or know what that person, how they're going to take it. But I would say that is absolutely in the lines. And that's when we sort of get into the conversation of, you know, the whole spiritual bypassing and the toxic positivity, because there are ways to express these that may not appear or feel like that is like, oh, but that's not kumbaya. Well, no, sometimes truthfulness and nonviolence and kindness is, is, can sound harsh. I'm going to throw that out there. <laughs> I don't know who caught it. Yes. All right. So, okay. yes. yes, yes, yes. Are we that's good? Gonna take, I think we're good. We what doing? do you think? We're doing we're good. We're rolling. We're rolling. Yeah, Crispy we are moving we are, forward. We're <laughs> So number three, How does everybody else think we are um, showing up as crispy people. <laughs> oh my gosh! Remember, can you sometimes, 
you know, sometimes it's better to be kind than right, though. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Because what is right? Yeah, right. And so we get to number three, Astea, non-stealing. How do we raise that in a positive, non-stealing? Uh, maybe it'll come. One of the things I found uh, uh, when I was reading non-stealing, fairness in our exchanges of physical objects, energy, emotion, and our ecological footprint. That came from uh, Mudras for Healing and Transformation by Joseph Lepage and Joseph and Lillian. This fairness in exchange. And I like that better than non-stealing. If I'm going to barter re or offer a service, receive a service, purchase my food and my gasoline, <laughs> the dollar value should be equal to what I'm offering, what I'm giving. So this balance of moving back and forth. But I also like that they brought it into the fairness of exchange in our exchanges of our ecological footprint. That is a practice that goes on for generations to come to recognize, can I recycle this thing? Should I buy something new or reuse? Uh, for those of you who've been listening for a long time, you know that my apartment that I live in right now is completely furnished with things that other people have already used from estate sales and Facebook marketplace and the thrift stores so that they don't wind up sitting in a landfill just completely decaying, that there'll be a time when they are no longer useful, that they're just falling apart and they have to move on. But until then, uh, we can use the shit out of those things before they drop into our landfill. Absolutely. Uh, from this yoga journal article, and I'll put all of that in the show notes and you'll have, you know, the authors and all of that. They don't steal. The Yoga Sutra says all good things will come to you because asteya is commonly translated to mean refraining from taking anything that is not freely offered. The first thing most people think of are money, clothes, food, and other tangible stuff. But there's more to asteya than what is found on the material plane. This is by someone with last name Devi. Uh, there are lots of things you can steal. You can steal someone's time if you're late. You can steal someone's energy. You can steal someone's... See, she says you can steal someone's happiness. I'm not so sure that's true, but we can talk about that. She says you can steal someone else's ideas if you represent them as your own. I've been on the, not the doing end of that, but the person who's had stuff taken, ideas and words and things like that, which, you know, I know not everything is, is unique, but, you know, we have a unique style and I know my words when I hear them. To invite Estea into your life, consider what you truly need and refrain from letting your desires persuade you to take more. So this also feeds into we've got non-hoarding coming up. Like all of these are related in some way. And if you look at them, you know, there's like everything else, the koshas, the chakras, it's really hard to separate them completely. I even wrote in my notes, leaks into a parigraha. But have fair trade be your mantra, not only in your shopping habits, but also in your day-to-day -day interactions. Respect the time and energy of others. Give credit where credit is due. And see if you can build up the world's kindness reserves by giving more than you take which also goes back to the ecology, leave things better than you find them. You know, what was it? Donna Farhi. I love this quote. She's a, a national yoga teacher, international yoga teacher. She says, when we feel connected to the vastness of life and are confident of life's abundance, we are naturally generous and able to practice the third yama, non-stealing, asteya, unquote. 
there's a lot of real good juiciness in here. You know, what is it? What is stealing? Well, Gandhi said, mankind's greed and craving for artificial needs is stealing. So the mindset of, I think the mindset of arriving or being in the mindset of lack uh, rather than the mindset of abundance, being in the mindset of blaming rather than the mindset of gratitude is a way of taking, whether, like you said, whether taking objects, taking someone else's energy, just not being open to be in this place of recognizing just how much abundance there is in my life. I won't speak for others. And I would be hopeful that in no matter what space you are in your life at any given time, that there's still some things that you can pause, look at, and say, this is a place of abundance. And, you know, the practice of just, you said that Andy Reiki's his meat. In that also to come from this place of knowing that I don't need anything and this practice of not taking things that don't belong or taking too much is a practice of gratitude for having what I have and one tiny little pause before I eat just to, it doesn't have to be a, a whole prayer. It can just be like, ooh, thank you. This is going to be delicious. But the recognition of how lucky I am to have that deliciousness sitting on my plate is also a way of practicing from a place of abundance. I love, 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 love seeing my freezer full of, full of food. And I get my food at Snipes Farm in their CSA. And what I really love about it that makes me notice abundance is when I buy my carrots, all the greens are still on. When I buy my radishes, it has the radish greens and the beet greens, all the greens that we sometimes don't see when we buy these products in the store. And they're all delicious in their own right, sauteing up all those greens. But there's so many that I don't always have enough belly space to eat them all. But before I throw them away, I put them in my crock pot for a day and just let them simmer. And that stock becomes the foundation of my soups. And at this time of year, there's just something about crock pot soups that really make me feel abundant. Uh, cutting up those vegetables because they're so prolific, right? That you can find them everywhere. When you walk in to the big red barn, and look at the colorful array of foods and all of the stuff that came out of the fields. There's that scent of earthiness that still floats on the air to bring them home and make sure that none of them go to waste. Not even those greens that there's way too many for me to eat. And then cutting them up, making soups so that when I'm really busy, I can still go back to Ahimsa and have some nice healthy food in my freezer that I can pull out this delicious soup and care for my body in a kind and compassionate way. That's awesome. And the whole idea of the, the Stacy talked about the abundant universe. You know, your abundance is not taking someone else's away. There's enough for everyone. And part of this practice is when we know we have enough, 
then Estea can just naturally arise. You know, it's, it's that knowing that we have everything we need inside of us. And that once we have that, that internal knowledge, there's no need to steal. And, you know, but there's also, you know, if we are someone who stays in our comfort zone, for example, you're stealing your potential. You know, there's, that's not practice. If we're continuing to eat when we're full, you know, that's another way of not practicing. Non you're stealing from your future hunger, whatever that may be. When we underestimate ourselves, when we don't recognize our own talents, our gifts, our skills, we rob ourselves of, of growth. We're stealing from the possibility that we could be more than what we think we are or even who exactly we are. When we don't give credit, you know, that's stealing. We've talked about that, leaving the earth better than we found it. When we worry about the future or when we're brooding about the past, we're stealing the present moment. Like there are so many different ways that we can break this down. And none of this is about judging. Oh my God, I suck, man. I keep stealing. I'm, what, I'm, I didn't realize I was such a thief. You know, that's, <laughs> that's not the thing. It's all of these practices and all of these limbs are opportunities for self-education, for getting to know who we are so that we can show up more fully in the world. And so when we talk about transformation, that's kind of what we're talking about. And if we're afraid to look at our own shadows, we are robbing ourselves of our own light because we need to be able to acknowledge where we fall off the path or wander way off the path or turn a truck or whatever the fuck you're falling off of. But we need to be able to say, yeah, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I fucking suck. Sometimes I'm the bad guy or whatever it is. And again, I said it wasn't about judging, but it's about just noticing. Noticing when I am not practicing ahimsa and when I could be a little kinder and noticing when I notice that I'm doing it in the moment and choose not to anyway. You know, what is that about? So it, none of it is about like self-flagellating and saying, I'm so bad or I suck. It's just saying sometimes I suck and I'm work, willing to work on it. I'm willing to look at myself for who I am in the same way that I'm willing to practice enough meditation so that I can see the world as it is, to see things as they are starts with ourselves. So non-stealing, it's a lot more than just, you know, taking your sister's favorite blouse or, you know, pennies from her penny jar, as I've alluded to in the past. Sorry. Sorry, sisters. Or, re or reading her diary when you know you're not supposed to, right? The stealing of somebody's privacy. Well, I mean, well, it sounds like something you, you know, that you know. <laughs> Yes, I do have to say, sometimes I've uh, done things at different stages of my life that I'm not, uh, <laughs> that I'm glad that they're over and choose not to repeat them again. <laughs> so funny. So funny. So maybe, uh, you know, the other side of non-stealing is to be generous where we can be generous and yeah. giving when we can be giving and just not wasteful of whatever the resource is whether it's energy, time, food, money, just. You just, you led right into the next one about energy, about the moderating of energy. So that's the fourth one. And again, like we can't just completely isolate each one. So many of the things you said about Asteya are true for Brahmacharya and Aparigraha. I mean, they're just as we, I know these words, if you don't know them, they're fun to say. So stick with us. So brahmacharya is energy moderation. And in the traditional texts, you would see it as celibacy or chastity, that those who chose to be on the yogic path were encouraged to harness their energy and save it for the path, for the yogic studies and moving forward. But you know what? 
I'm a householder yogi. I don't live in a cave. I am someone who has responsibilities outside that I, I choose this path to inform how I show up to do the things I need to do as a householder yogi, but I'm not an ascetic. I'm not someone who is, you know, taking all of these things and purely, I don't know, filtering them through a, a life that is without, without other external things I need to do. So this is a modern conversation about brahmachari, you know, sort of the moderation of energy could mean even eating slower. You know, schedule your screen time. Here's some practices. Schedule. If you're someone who is indulgent in energy, and I know as someone who has um, been uh, maybe a former practicing hedonist, I don't know if I'm still in that world. I've never been afraid of my desires and going out and fully inhabiting whatever that is. Uh, but now in my life, I recognize the value for moderating that energy and somehow, you know, when you have a faucet, we're so lucky in this culture that we have water we can turn on with a faucet. And if you turn it just a little bit, there might be a little trickle of water. And that's, it might just be enough. But if you turn it all the way on in that, that gush of water, so much of that gets wasted. You know, we don't need that big gush to, to wash our hands or to fill a cup or, you know, to notice how much we need to turn the spigot on the, on the water faucet so that we have enough, but not too much. Maybe just even that practice of a slow exhale. The slow exhale gives me an opportunity to look at how I'm investing my energy and also the time for digesting of the emotions uh, so that I can be aware of how I feel and what's going on. You know, I'm a yin practitioner. I love yin yoga. And uh, and I am not a scholar, nor do I know a whole ton about the organ meridians or Eastern medicine, but I do know a little bit, and to quote Sherry, enough to kill us all, but I do know uh, yin yoga fairly well. And it is a practice that has a focus on the organ meridians and their pathways in many of the shapes and positions that we take. Now, I'm going to say that this is not going all the way back to the yogic texts. These are newer, yeah, I, I believe, I believe yin yoga might be a newer practice, but not the organ meridians. That's a pretty old healing system. But it always, I was always curious as to why they had the heart, why the heart and lungs were paired with the small and large intestines. I always, you know, the intestines, they're organs of digestion. And one day, I don't know if this is right or not, this is Teresa's interpretation of the pairing, not something that I read, but that the heart and lungs are also organs of digestion, that our heart not only digests our blood and cleans it and circulates it through our body, but the heart also is kind of... Um, I look at the heart as also a place where emotions, and this is non-physical, where emotions are digested, this psycho-emotional digestion. And the lungs, they take air from the outside world, they bring it in, they decide what we need, what doesn't serve, circulate it through the body, and digest our connection to the outside of our body. And I see these as really great ways of being aware of and using my energy. Because if I don't digest those emotions and I hold on to them and where they become, 
these habits and, and unseen patterns, they zap my energy. I feel lethargic and, and weighted down and stuck and unable to move forward because I don't have the energy to do so. Because I'm weighted down with things that I just refuse to look at and digest. I have a question that's really interesting. And I love, I've heard you talk about the digestion part before. Is the feeling of lethargy and heaviness the same regardless of the emotion that is not being digested? So if it was sort of, you know, I know that the demon of the heart chakra is grief. And so if there's like a deep sadness of a loss of a parent or a loved one or a friend, you know, that is not necessarily being well digested by the heart, is that the same lethargy and heaviness than, say, the feeling of being pissed off and angry at someone for, you know, breaching your boundaries or, you know, not not giving you what you think you need from that relation, whatever that is. Like, because those energies are, for me, they feel different, even though we know energy is pure and it's all just what we're projecting on it. But so I wonder if, depending on the the undigested emotion, if the experience in the body is the same or different. That's a really great question that I don't, I mean... It's a good thing to ponder and really start to begin to notice as part of the practice. You know, are, do they show up differently? I, I don't know. I think that sometimes for me personally, anger shows up more of a, oh, like it has, I don't even know what the word is, but when I feel angry that somebody's breached something, I don't think I feel lethargy. I think I feel like a, you know, a lioness wanting to jump out and, you know, protect myself or others. So, but that is just on a very quick answer right. to a question that, um, that you just asked that I wasn't expecting. Because digestion, well, no, but this is interesting because digestion, yeah. you've, you've even said as part of the autonomic nervous system is not something we can control like the breath, you know, which is part of the autonomic, but we can also direct it. So, when you talked about that heaviness and holding on to undigested emotion in the heart, that felt unconscious, like that was part of the autonomic nervous system digesting that experience without even any interaction. But when you talked about anger, it felt deliberate and on purpose, like you were in the digestion on purpose, like you were like the breath directing that you were conscious of that, that digestion where the other felt a little less, if that's fair. I don't know. No, I think that is fair because I don't, for me and working with others as a body worker, but I'll only speak for myself. Sometimes the lethargy and the lack of energy shows up, but it's hard to de decide why. And I mm -hmm. think that sometimes, yeah, some of those hurts or past traumas or whatever they may be, however, we're going to label them, mm -hmm. aren't always visible until we bring in our other practices, like you had said, the mindfulness, the meditation, the sitting with it, going to my sit spot and letting things kind of flow in and out of my conscious thought uh, is a practice of maybe identifying some of the reasons why I don't feel that I have a right use of my energy because it is being weighted down by something that I'm not really looking at. So I think that is a motivation for me for the other practices to notice, why wow, I feel really lethargic and weighted down and I don't know what's going on. I could 
fall into a pattern of saying, oh, I'm just going to sit around on the couch for days on end. And I'm sure that in some circumstances, it's hard for us to get motivated to move beyond that. But it can also be the signal that says, did you like, are you like lacking in your practices a little bit? Are you letting them kind of move over to the wayside and not instead of leaning into them to uh, help in this process of digestion? It, from Asana Journal, they break down Brahmacharya, Brahma. But, you know, if you're looking at the Trimurti in Hinduism, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, Brahma is the god of creation, the deity of creation. And then we've got preservation and destruction. Then there's Brahmin, the, the big one. Uh, but they break down Brahma as divine consciousness and Charya as living or one who is established in. So this consciousness piece, this divine consciousness in energy moderation, in this way that we are sort of consciously moving into our divine space, the, the way we show up and how we do that with our, with our energy systems. I, I found that really interesting just in terms of the root of the word from the yoga journal. They say anything that uh, it's a personal energy conservation program. When you practice brahmacharya, you are not letting the senses rule your behavior. You are not urge driven which to me, all that is a beautiful way of talking about divine consciousness, that we're not subjected to our urges and those immediate that, you know, when we, and as a former practicing hedonist, I will say when the desire arose, I would follow it. And with very little attention to the energy expended to, to achieve that, whatever it was going to a rainbow gathering and just letting it all, you know, out, there was really no harnessing of, of my energy in those situations. And I, I don't regret them and I would do them all again, given the same circumstances. But this I, I find really interesting as we progress along our own particular paths. Then it goes on to say that anything that causes turbulence in the mind and stirs the emotion might be seen as a violation of brahmacharya, overstimulating foods, loud music, violent movies, and yes, inappropriate sexual behavior. Whatever disturbs the mind and body disturbs the spiritual life. It is all one energy, says Debbie. And I just find that really very, I don't want to, comforting isn't the right word, but clear. One of the things that captured my attention in the right use of energy and this psycho-emotional digestion, there's a prevalence of using battle vocabulary. And I think there's an energy to that. I've I've felt this for a long time, and sometimes it is hard for me to communicate it clearly in where I'm coming from, and it's often misunderstood when I'm having conversations. So I hope that doesn't happen here. <laughs> but I'm not having. So we'll see what happens. Ralph Waldo Emerson said to be misunderstood was to be great. Ah, yeah. Well, I'm going to be really great right now. So. We just finished our uh, midterm elections, and this is not going to be a political discussion, but the terminology is, I am fighting for so-and-so to win, or I am fighting for human rights, or I'm fighting for this or that. Whatever it is, I always feel that there is still the energy of fighting, still the energy of battle. And I don't have an answer for it, you know, I'm fighting against cancer. I'm wondering if there isn't a better or a more appropriate, not better or worse, but a more clear word to use 
with a different type of energy that is not battle vocabulary. Like I'm an ad, go ahead. But, but why don't we try to find Susanna's post and we can put it in the show notes because she wrote a beautiful thing on the battle language in her own battles. Oh, and, fantastic. Um, we can maybe, I'll try to find that and put that because, I mean, I think she really encapsulated it well. That'd be beautiful because she is such a great, she's such a great communicator. I love reading her words. I do too. You know, and in our tradition in yoga, we have the Bhagavad Gita, you know, which is all about battle language, mm -hmm. you know, and, but so it's like energy is pure language. We put what our own stuff on it. Everything is projection. You know, everything is sort of illusion in that way. And so, yes, and yes, we have an opportunity to shift the language to reframe it. Like I loved when Marion Williamson was running at the primaries back in 2016. You know, I think she was a little out of her depth on that, but she added something really important. She said, we have a war department. Why don't we have a peace department? And I thought that was brilliant. And I think that it's not about negating one over the other. It's not about saying that the battle language is bad or wrong or somehow um, infuses the conversation with with violence, though it it may, but it also may be the exclamation point required, kind of like facing that bully, because if we have an adversary, if we have someone who is, you know, sort of coming out against us, then there is kind of, you know, it's appropriate, I think, to have a battle language. You know, if you're fighting against my right to X, Y, Z, whatever that may be, then I'm going to feel the warrior inside. And even this weekend, I, I, when we were talking about, you know, whatever future selves, I've been my whole life cultivating this warrior spirit because I feel like that is what I needed to balance out my sensitivities, my other things, not to negate them. I still have, but to be able to bring balance. And now that I feel like I've really, I, I stand firmly in my warrior spirit, I can now begin to cultivate more delicate things to balance that out. It's never done. It's never like, I was this, now I'm this. I was this, now I'm this, and now I'm becoming that. And this is how I'm in a constant state of working for balance. It's, you know, that sort of, um, what did you call it? Not the equanimity, the, uh, the homeostasis in the body. You know, always kind of working for that, that I feel like I'm always sort of in that watery element to find that balance. I never achieve it. I'm always working toward it. And sometimes I feel more in balance than other times. And it doesn't take much to kind of knock off balance. So in the world of brahmacharya and this conscious living and stepping into, you know, consciously managing the energies, it's an ongoing process. It just really never fucking ends. <laughs> it, it doesn't. And in, you know, in the conversation about developing that warrior spirit, I like spiritual warrior who moves through their advocacy with passion and purpose and harmony and peace and kindness and willingness to listen and change. And yeah, there's an energy to all of it. And energies are definitely fleeting. The homeostasis is definitely fleeting. We touch on all of these things for these brief moments where we're just like, oh, well, I got it. But then something happens, what life is here, the world happens, we shift a little bit, and we're on to the next energy and the next, the next thought, the next project, the next expression. So I don't know. Can we take words like transform and passion and purpose and at least 
balance out the battle at language. Brahmacharya is also an invitation to to go inward. What a, this? I forget where I got this. It's from one of the articles. Brahmacharya also evokes a sense of directing our energy away from external desires and instead towards finding peace and happiness within ourselves. And so, you know, again, we are the boss of ourselves. <laughs> we get to do, you know. All My right. nephew would be happy to hear that because every time I babysat for him, he said, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> so well, I guess he was right all along, right? <laughs> that's so funny. That's so and cute. that's going to move mouth. us along the needle. Do you have anything else for uh, before we move on? I'm sure we could. This is, again, our longest conversation, and we should probably oh. wrap it up. We're, we're at our final one at Aparigraha, which, you know, you use the word generous with the non-stealing, I think, or back-end truthfulness. And in the positive, affirmative way of saying non-hoarding or non-greed, the Yamas in the theartofliving.org, they call it generosity um, rather than non-hoarding. Uh, so what do you got? <laughs> Non-attachment. <laughs> it's a, definitely a practice. And one that I can say is much newer in my life. Uh, than maybe some of the other things that I've done. But I really looked at non-attachment when I was making the choice to move into a motorhome full-time and saying, I've got all of these possessions that I cannot take with me. So even though they hold a really special place in my heart, it's time to let them move on and hold a special place in whoever can use them next. So the good thing about that was I threw away very little. I repurposed, resold, regifted almost everything that I had. And uh, in the practice of non-attachment, while I was going through that, my son said to me, I was like, oh, this is difficult to decide what to get rid of. And he said, well, maybe this will help. This is a good practice. Anything that you're ready, that you know that you can't bring with you or you're trying to decide, pick it up hold it in your hands, and then notice, is it the thing that you're holding that you love and really want to hold on to? Or is it the person who gifted it to you, the memory of receiving that gift, something that is non-tangible that you can take with you all for the rest of your life, even if you no longer have that object? And that helped me get rid of an awful lot of things. Yeah, you know, I was. I do a lot of purging. I I don't get attached. I used to be much more sentimental, but I'm I'm not so attached to things anymore. So I, if there are certain things that I just want to remember energetically that about the experience, but I'm concerned I might not remember it, I'll take a picture of it. And I wonder if even just energetically that is still hoarding, if that's still holding on to it in some way just by even just digital hoarding. But I thought, so I'm going to switch gears for a second from this yoga journal article. They say yoga parigraha means non-grasping, and it can be a tough sell in this consumer culture of ours. But freedom from wanting more and more is just that, freedom. And when I read that, I, was, I had a thought from last summer. My husband and I did a program called Wild Fit. The guy who led it, Eric something, I forget his last name, was Wild Fit. And he told a story that stuck with me when it came to just with food. It was a hard program to do as a vegan. I wouldn't do it again. If you're not vegan, I highly recommend it. I think he's knowledgeable and, and there's a lot of really good information there. But he said that he was talking to a guy who told him once that 
he couldn't, he couldn't do the program because he wanted to be free to eat whatever he wanted to eat. And then he said, you know, he couldn't walk by a buffet table that had pizza without eating the pizza. So Eric said, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. If you can't pass by and not eat it, like that, that's, you've got, it's got a hold on you, which is the opposite of freedom. And so the way that we look at things, I think that is, you know, sometimes we need that guide. We need someone to redirect our attention to see where we're grasping. So even, you know, if I just kept taking pictures all the time of the things I was throwing away, was I really letting them go? And someone could come in and say, you know, maybe practice don't doing that. Don't doing that. This is my Chris. (laughs) Stop doing that. And when I started thinking about this particular yama and I thought, what practices would would really serve and how would this show up in in my life and i've always just given shit away give your stuff away give things that matter to you to people who matter to you and keep that that energy going and that's not just things be generous with your ideas share your ideas with people if someone is stuck share your gifts share your love don't i i've written a poem about don't be stingy with your love don't be stingy with your mentorship don't be stingy with your time You know, these are things that we can give away that allow us to create spaciousness and not spaciousness so that we can fill it again with something else, but spaciousness that is itself fullness. And that goes back to emptiness. This form form is emptiness. It goes back to things don't have value of their own. It's what we put on them. And so there's this continuum of energy that we get to work with that allows us to to open up more to, to this life. Even, you know, beyond the, the physical, tangible things, and I have to say, I've been the recipient of many of Sherry's here. You love this? Take it. So it is authentically given with love and joy and, you know, knowing that the person, or uh, I'm speaking for her after her because now, but it appears that she knows how much joy she is offering to somebody just with that generosity, or at least that's the way I feel. She'll have to correct me if, I, if her after the because was off, but it always feels like there's this genuine joy that is infused into each one of those gifts. But there's also, like in that same spirit, um, from going back to the mudra, mudras for transformation and healing, when speaking about uh, non-attachment, we also, we also deepen our ability to release attachment to our beliefs, including spiritual beliefs, which when held too rigidly become obstacles to awakening. So, you know, this idea to be open to people's opinions, we don't have to change the way we think. We don't have to change the way that we believe. But the practice of being able to listen, to hear, to not be so committed to this is what I think and this is what I feel and this is my belief, but open to the possibility that our belief can change a little bit. It can change a ton when we are open to hear other points of view and look at things from a variety of different lenses. That is really freeing. And maybe you get to the end of these uh, really in-depth conversations and say, I've listened to everybody with an open heart and open ears, and I still feel the same way. Or maybe I've changed a tiny bit or taking a step closer to a different viewpoint. I love that. And I feel like in the age we live in where there's so much misinformation, 
being disseminated, that there's a difference between opinion and feeling about something and just getting it wrong. Like, I, I have no interest. If you're a Holocaust denier, there's no difference of opinion there. You know, that there are people who feel very strongly that it never happened. And, you know, I have no interest in having a conversation or being open to that opinion because it's not rooted in reality. It's not rooted in fact. And so, not, and that's not to say that opinions and feelings have to always be rooted in something real. If it's a feeling, you have a feeling about something. But I don't think I should be expected to sit in conversation and be open-hearted to someone who is just spewing bullshit. And that may be something I need to work on. I don't know. There are certain hard lines that I have. And I think that theoretically, absolutely, theoretically, we should all be able to sit and share space and be open to the different ideas, ideas that move us along, ideas that as a culture can be, can progress us forward and not back in any way. And, you know, I draw a hard line at hate and, you know, deeply rooted biases that, you know, may teeter on the, the racist, whatever, you know, those lines. I, I just have very little tolerance for that. So if we're talking about, you know, engaging in a world of ideas, I'm all there. But I think in today's world, that's a, such a, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to talk about. Like, because yes, theoretically, I would love to be able to do that. And when I sit down and I'm actually in those conversations, it blows my fucking mind sometimes. And so, but we're in the non-grasping and the non-hoarding. And so this can be applied to, I guess, ahimsa. It can be applied to non-violence. It can be applied to truthfulness. It can be applied to non-stealing. Don't steal history. Don't rewrite. Don't be a revisionist historian. That's stealing someone else's story, you know? And then we get into moderation of the energies. That can come up in these conversations too. And then at the very end here with our generosity and, and non I can be generous to a degree, but I think that I still have a lot of work to do. I think we all have a lot of work to do. And the admitting that we all, that we have a lot of work to do is a practice of its own to always know that when we're on the path, whatever path we've chosen, but for us in this moment, this is the path, the eightfold path that we're talking about. When we're on it, there's work to get done. And when we finish it, you know what? We get to do the work again because sometimes it's never, ever finished. There's always the next thing to look at. But the more that we practice, the more that we have awareness of these roots of the tree of life, we can come back to them and practice. And we mentioned earlier that these roots, these are the foundational skills. These are the parts of the path that help us to prepare our mind and then our bodies to sit and meditate and reflect. When I catch myself wanting to hoard or, you know, doing something that's not really great for me or my body or my mind or my spirit, and then I'm reminded it's time to step back over and remember those practices. It comes back to the meditation. Know when your mind has wandered and bring it back. And we're just constantly bringing it back. And I've always, this is, I always feel like whatever we do, it's always about discernment, you know, but mm -hmm. all of that is predicated on awareness. Like, how can you be discerning if you're not aware? How can you practice if you're not aware? Oh, with the awareness has to kind of be, I think, the precursor to, to so much of what we're talking about. And so having the, the conversations at all are about sparking that curiosity about awareness. And interestingly enough, as crispy as we are, this has been the longest, I think, 
conversation that we've had, but we covered it all. And I think that we did a pretty good job of, of harnessing all of the different energies of these yamas. Maybe that leads us into next time. We'll be talking about the niyamas. Stay tuned for that. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.